0: I want to thank everybody for tuning in today. I appreciate your time and wanting to take your time to learn a little bit more about hormones. On today's podcast, I have wanted this guest for a long time. I have Dr. Keith Nichols on the show. I have had to I don't know, Keith, would you call it stalking? I have several messages
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: through, through the WorldLink platform sure. r- requesting your presence today. So Dr. Nichols is a highly regarded thought leader in the hormone optimization space, and he's has made significant contributions to the specialty. I guarantee this is gonna be a podcast episode that you wanna listen to more than once. Dr. Nichols did a podcast with Jay Campbell several years ago. I think it was called like TRT Part 1 and 2. And I kid you not, I listened to that thing probably 30 times. And he, I had David Lee on the podcast a few weeks ago, and he said he also listened to that episode a gazillion times. And I think our clinic and our providers are probably responsible for the thousands of streams those episodes have had because they were they were so, so good. And I know that the content that you're going to give us today is going to be just as great. So thank you for being on the show, Dr. Nichols.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you for the kind words. I'm glad to be here. Any, any way to help that we can. And good to see you, Anna. And Amy, of course, both of you guys.
0: Yeah. So I also have Anna Griffith on the podcast. She's a DNP here at Victory. If the patients are listening, you might have have met with her already. But Anna has completed Dr. Neil Rousier's WorldLink Advanced Hormone Training, which Dr. Nichols also completed. He's also very active with WorldLink. So I thought they could complement each other and they align very well with how they go about treating hormones. So I thought it'd be great to have her on the show as well. So thanks, Anna, for joining us as well. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here with both of you. (laughs) Okay. So we're just going to jump right in here, Dr. Nichols. So I want to start with the testosterone reference ranges. So we hear this all the time. So I know you have heard this a million times. I went to my primary care doctor and my testosterone is in the quote normal reference range. I don't need to treat it or that's not why I'm having these symptoms. So I want to understand and talk about How have there become such a fixation on these, quote, normal reference ranges when we know that LabCorp, Quest, these big laboratories are continuing to drop these reference ranges over time to match our unhealthy fat society that's being bombarded by endocrine disruptors all day long. And now we have this mindset or these providers have this mindset, well, because LabCorp lowered the reference range. We cannot treat outside of that range. How, how have correct. we arrived here?
1: Well, you got to remember in our training, normal implies asymptomatic and free of a disease, and that may be correct in certain disorders, but it certainly doesn't apply to hormones. It's not how hormones work. To be within a normal range, and that's a you know a, a wide range, doesn't mean you're asymptomatic or free of the disease in any way, shape, or form. That's not how hormones work. So let's kind of talk about the lab ranges in general. So testosterone has been used since the mid-1930s. And modern endocrinology really didn't begin until the 1970s. And that was with the development of the radioimmunoassays that they had to measure really small concentrations of hormones. Prior to that, they couldn't measure them. So we really don't have any data regarding normal testosterone levels prior to the 1970s utilizing any sensitive assays. But we can go back and look at what the literature shows us. In 2006, there was a paper published, uh, Morgan Toller was the author, where they looked at the testosterone levels in 25 different facilities. The upper end of normal in some of those labs is 1,593 nanograms per deciliter. So in July of 2017, the normal range at LabCorp was 348 nanograms per deciliter to 1,197. Now those levels came from the Framingham Heart Study. Now that level was changed in July of 2017 to 264 to 916. Now, this new harmonized reference range was basically from four studies being done in the United States and Europe, and it was based on men 19 to 39 years of age with a BMI less than 30. Now, it's important to understand that these men were not tested or were not screened for signs or symptoms of a deficiency. So when we think about this for a moment, prior to July of 2017, a testosterone level in a man that's being treated, or if he had a normal baseline level, of 1,190 was considered healthy and normal. Nobody thought a thing about it. It wouldn't be flagged on the, on, the, on the lab order when the doctor got it back. But after July of 2017, it became super physiologic, therefore abusive and potentially harmful. Now, nothing could be further from the truth. Oh, and we all know that the new normal, in my personal opinion, is to be deficient. And for men out there, there's always these guys posting, these are my testosterone levels. Do I need testosterone? Doesn't tell us anything. And let me explain why. It's important to point out that there is no specific testosterone level that denotes a deficiency, meaning that there's no specific number such as 300 or 500, where you can say that everyone below that number needs testosterone and everyone above it doesn't. That's in no way what the medical literature shows us. The guidelines are not based on what the medical literature does show us. For instance, we can look at a study done in 2004 where they gave inserted testosterone pellets in the men, and that would raise their testosterone levels. And as those testosterone levels dropped, they would measure, they would give them symptom questionnaires and look for when their symptoms of a deficiency would return. All right. Now, what they found out was that return of testosterone deficiency symptoms were highly reproducible within individuals, indicating that each individual man had a very consistent level where he became symptomatic. But it also showed that this level varied markedly between men. So there's a great deal of inter-individual variability, we call it, with regard to when someone will become symptomatic. Another study done by Zipman showed that loss of vigor and libido occurred at levels less than 432. Now, that's much higher than the normal range of 264 that we use to diagnose the deficiency with. So how we actually diagnose and treat men How we provide care or restrict care is not based on the actual medical literature. It's based on the opinions of the authors of the guidelines.
2: Yep, exactly. I I love hearing you talk because everything that comes out of your mouth, Dr. Nichols, has one, if not 20 studies that back up everything that you say, which is not true for everyone in this industry. So based off of what you just said, why is it, do you think, that we see people in these specialties, urologists and endocrinologists, who should be the ones on top of the literature and do everything that's evidence-based, why are they still telling us that men need estrogen blockers, that testosterone causes prostate cancer, that we have to stay within these ranges of below 800 on testosterone to treat them and not be super physiological?
1: I'm going to give you an answer that's not flattering to physicians, (laughs) okay? Once we end our training, most of us, and they get out there and start practicing. The urologists are focused on surgery, seeing patients in the clinic. They don't follow the medical literature, Anna. Mm -hmm. They'll go to conferences, but they'll spend that time a lot of times with their families, use it as a vacation, get their CME credit. So we assume that people really follow the medical literature like what we want to, but very few physicians actually follow the medical literature. The urologists, the endocrinologists out there, they're not focused on Taking a deep dive into testosterone, they're focused on treating the hundreds of other patients they have in clinics with diabetes and other, you know, endocrine disorders. So there, it's just not a a focus. In order to to understand testosterone and these hormones, you have to take a deep dive and, and and learn yourself. And they're not going to take the time to do that. It's not. I'm not going to say it's necessarily their fault. It's just something that they they get go through their training. They learned it the way they learned it, and that's the way I'm going to do it. They're not really, you know, they, they suffer from, yes, uh, confirmational bias, but it's what I call belief perseverance. They learned it that way, they believe it, and it's going to persevere no matter if we present them with with data that shows otherwise, they will ignore it. I, I used to give patients packets of information to support what we did, just the medical literature from their actual literature from, you know, the Journal of Inter- you know, Internal Medicine, the Endocrine Society, all the journals. And I stopped doing that many years ago because I had two patients come back to see me that were literally in tears. And they handed the doctor the packet of information. That I'm going to start hormones. I'm going to say, oh, no, those are bad. Well, well, the doctor gave me this to give to you. It's, it's, it's the literature to, to teach you about or show you what we're doing. And right in front of them, they didn't even look at it. They literally walked over and threw it into the trash can right in front of the patient. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of the response that we get uh, from our colleagues. Mm -hmm. Gotta remember, I went through the same thing. I was mismanaged, misdiagnosed, mistreated by my own colleagues, not purposely. But that's just what happens because we're just not trained in it. We're just not trained in it.
2: On the flip side, you know, uh, we we talk about these there's not a number where we see uh, deficiency symptoms where there's not a number where we see people get clinical improvements from, but also you've talked a lot about thresholds of where you're going to see benefit And that. I know you and David Lee just had a great podcast talking about the lifestyle implications and how testosterone is, is not a magic bullet. It does not fix everything. You have to be putting in the other work. So can you talk a little bit about at what point do you, do you get down and say, Dude, this is not testosterone. that's your problem. you got to fix these other problems.
1: Well, that's a really good question, or a really great question. let's kind of We'll take a little deeper dive into into the free testosterone and then treatment, for instance but But I will tell you, and i I'm going to make the assumption everybody that' sitting there that they they're exercising adequately and and eating correctly, you know good nutrition uh, I, as Dave and I talked, testosterone rewards effort. The patient has to put in the sweat equity. I tell the patient, look, I can get your hormones optimal. That's not a problem. That's not difficult. You have the difficult job. You have to put in the sweat equity. It will reward effort. So we've talked about the totals, but really it's the free testosterone that matters. It's the free testosterone. And I don't think this gets talked about enough. And what I like to do is go back and look at where certain beliefs came from, where we were taught in medicine, especially with regard to hormones, where did where did that information come from? And a lot of times you're going to find that it didn't come from anything. It was just purely an opinion. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, when men, men out there that don't know about free testosterone, in a normal man, about 1% to 3% of total testosterone circulates freely in the blood. We call it free testosterone. 40 to 60% is bound to sex hormone binding globulin and the remainder to other proteins like albumin. So it's real important to note that there is a lack, a complete lack of standardization of free testosterone measure methods, and there are no harmonized reference ranges for free testosterone. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to measure it, equilibrium dialysis or ultrafiltration coupled with liquid chromatography, tandem mass spectrometry, provides the most sensitive and specific method to measure free testosterone. So let's talk about these labs again. In LabCorp, the normal range for free testosterone is 5 to 21 nanograms per deciliter. In Quest, it's 35 to 155 picograms per milliliter. Do any of y'all know where that, not a trick question, do you guys know where that normal range came from? Sample me of
2: neither. A- me, me, me <laughs> neither,
1: me neither, because it's, it's not published data. It didn't come from a study. <laughs> yeah. Those are internally derived normal ranges from Quest or LabCorp. It's their own data. We know nothing about the men that those levels were derived from, nothing about their health status, their hormone status. So we use that normal range to provide or restrict care based on a population of men we know nothing about. But what if we took a study where we do know something about the men when it comes to free testosterone levels? There was a study published in September 2022. I can send you all these studies that we mentioned today. In the Journal of Andrology, where they looked at reference intervals for free testosterone in adult men. And they measured it utilizing a standard, standardized equilibrium dialysis method. Now, what they did is they looked at healthy adult men, 19 to 39 years of age. The ranges of free testosterone in these men were 120 to 368 picograms per milliliter. That's well over double the upper end of the normal range for Quest. So for people listening, how does that equate clinically? How does that affect them clinically? Well, let's say they go to their physician, they're on testosterone. And their free testosterone gets up to 170, for instance, at Quest. Well, the doctor's going to say that is a super physiologic number because it only goes up to 155. You're going to have to lower your dose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, doctor, but I'm still symptomatic. I'm still having all these symptoms. Well, it's not testosterone because you're already over the normal range. Well, how nice would it be if we used a normal range that we can actually get our hands on from healthy men and it went up to 368? That doctor at that time would be more inclined to increase his testosterone dose to treat those symptoms because he has another. 150 points to work with there. Yep. Mm-hmm. So you see how these normal ranges can harm men more than help them. All right. So now we can talk about the so-called superphysiology. That's just kind of my soapbox recently, I guess. Uh, so look, most of the guidelines, including the Endocrine Society, recommend raising levels to the mid-normal physiologic range. We're going to use that word mid-physiologic range, which is around 600. The American Urology Association recommends using the minimal dose to get the levels to 450 to 600. Now, the problem is when we raise levels to 450, 600, I do not see men getting better. The majority of men do not improve. I can literally show all of you dozens of studies. I can send you lectures where urologists were lecturing on how testosterone should not be utilized, doesn't work. Dozens of studies where testosterone didn't work. The common denominator in every single one of those studies is that they only raised testosterone levels a little bit. You can even look at the testosterone trials, Anna. You know all about those. That was a you know a coordinated set of seven placebo-controlled control, control uh, trials. They showed maybe some modest but transient benefits in sexual function. They had maybe some small increases in hemoglobin and bone density, but they had no benefits in vitality or cognitive function. Baseline levels in those men was 275. The median level of testosterone treatment was 500. Raise it a little bit, get minimal benefit or no benefit. When you look at the most recently converted, uh, uh, completed Traverse trial, yeah. you know, evaluating the cardiovascular safety of testosterone therapy in men, the median baseline level in these men was 227. The median increase was only 148 nanograms per deciliter. of these men dropped out of treatment. The same amount that dropped out that were getting a placebo because when you only raise testosterone levels a little bit, it's like getting a placebo. So of course they dropped out.
2: I'm glad you brought up the Traverse trial. Sorry to interrupt you for just a minute. You know this this study was really good in helping kind of the the testosterone community say you know th- this is positive in showing that it it doesn't increase cardiovascular risk. But what you're bringing up is important in that just like most of the other studies we see, it only treats it to a certain level, and you know that that's not typically where we're treating to either.
1: Well, they only raise it once again median value of 148 nanograms per liter, a tiny mm-hmm. little amount. Now, we predicted the results of that trial when we saw the trial outline. We easily said it's not going to cause any adverse effects, but also it's not going to show much benefit.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And that's what it did. All right. I mean, it, that was that was the, the way that trial was designed. If you're only going to raise it a little bit, we know it's not going to cause harm. We know raising it a lot doesn't cause harm, but raising a little bit certainly wasn't going to cause harm, but it wasn't going to show us a lot of benefit either, yeah. you, you know, mm-hmm. tremendous benefit. So, you know, so when we really look at these testosterone trials that only raise it a little bit and didn't give any significant benefit, you know, and then look at what happens clinically when we raise it to an adequate amount and what we see happens with regard to their health status. It makes me question that what you have to question is the way we were taught to use it. Correct. And the answer is, of course, no. This is important comment. And I want you to understand that. There is absolutely no medical data that supports treating to a specific number, such as the mid-physiologic range. That was an opinion. The American Neurology Association, the Intercorsati, that is their opinion to treat to the mid-normal range. That opinion was not based on medical data showing that that's the best way to treat men or works the best. And more importantly, there's no evidence to support testosterone levels on therapy remaining in the normal ranges of physiologic production.
0: What would you say to the doctors that are afraid to treat outside that reference range purely because of being afraid of getting sued?
1: Well, I don't know of any true lawsuits on getting outside of the normal range, but it's but it but it's not the, necessarily the lawsuits. It's the it's the dealing with your colleagues, okay, yeah. and, the, and the and the medical boards. And those, they, you know, like Neil Rusey say, if they're not up on it, they're going to be down on it. Yep. And so they, so they fear, I've said this many times, we just talked about the normal range previously where 1197 was normal prior to July of 2017. Now all of a sudden, and it was good for years, no men, it they never harmed a single man. Having a level of 1100, it was normal. But yet now all of a sudden it's dangerous, super physiologic, abusive, going to cause harm, which it does not. But that's just the way our colleagues view the normal ranges. It's a, it's a tight little box, so you got to stay in. They view it like potassium in your heart, you know. It's it, it, but hormones don't work like electrolytes, and that's the real problem. So you know, but let's look at kind of what's out there, medical data on the other side of the coin. Let's look at even testosterone in females. You know, work's done by Rebecca Glasser, who's big on this. And look, she did the same experiment I talked about with men. She inserted pellets into women with testosterone deficiency symptoms, and she followed them along as the pellets dissolved and the testosterone levels went down and the average level that these women got four weeks after that pellet insertion was over 300 nanograms per deciliter which is four to six times the upper limit of normal for endogenous production for one and when those pellets dissolved and the symptoms came back their levels were around 170 and 180 which is two to three times endogenous levels so, and these women were treated for a year and there was no adverse effects other than, you know, some increase in facial hair and acne, which you would expect you see in men too, okay? So what Rebecca Glasser, myself, others, Anna, has found that the most consistent benefits that we get with testosterone have been in levels that exceeded the normal range and the higher levels correlate with greater clinical effect. We see it all the time. We saw it in the base and dose response studies where men were given 25, 50, 125, 300, 600 milligrams of testosterone for 20 weeks, And the higher the levels, there's a greater improvement in mood, cognition, libido, sexual function, as well as a greater increase in lean muscle mass and decrease in fat mass. So the question really comes down to this because we're leading into this big question because it's, uh, and I'll tell you what the question is shortly. But so literally we have to ask ourselves, is it correct that we should give a man a physiologic dose of testosterone that maintains their levels in the mid to upper end of the normal range that he could produce himself? Or should we be dosing it for a physiologic effect. In other words, treating symptoms and raising levels, just like we would insulin with blood sugar, all right? So I think that the question comes down to this, and I've asked this a lot lately. I asked it to Dave Lee. I'm going to ask it to you. This, the process of steroidogenesis, when we do it ourselves, is a very complex physiologic process. There's a lot of intermediate hormones involved. They certainly play a role in how we feel when we produce our own testosterone. Now, could it possibly be that we are more sensitive and responsive to our production, when we make it ourselves, then we take it exogenously. When we give testosterone, we bypass all of those physiologic events, intermediate hormones, and we get the end result. Do we need more when given exogenously to get the same effect that we could get if we produced it endogenously? What we see from a clinical standpoint is yes. So if I or another man could literally make a level of seven, eight, maybe 900 ourselves, that would probably work just fine with us. But whenever we give it from a clinical standpoint, we don't see good results raising it to six, seven, maybe 800 in a lot of men. Not every man, but most men. So, most men, when you're treating for symptomatic improvement, they're going to have levels that exceed the normal physiologic range in order to get that clinical result and success. And there is no harm there, no harm at all. So, it really comes down to this, though. So, then this is going to be misinterpreted, as Dr. Nichols just says. Raise your levels. Just keep going up. That's a, just keep going. More the better. No. I'm telling you that we do need to be outside that normal physiologic range for most men, not every man. But there is a point where you do say, as Annie asked, that, well, it's not testosterone. Men need to understand that there is actually a plateau to the feel-good effects of testosterone. There's a point at which raising levels will not have any effect on how you feel. And why is that? Why is that? Because there's a saturation point. In order for testosterone to exert its actions, it's feel-good effects. It has to bind to the receptors to exert a response. Once those receptors are fully saturated, you can keep raising testosterone levels. It will have no further effect on how you feel. All right? So that's that's an important. And so the argument comes down to where is that saturation point? Now, Peter Atiyah, guys like that, I've heard him say it online a few weeks ago, around 700. Level of 700. Once it gets 700, they're not any better. They take him off of can testosterone. He, can you
0: just stay in his lane, please? That's what yeah, I want. I hope so. I hope so.
1: <laughs> so, look, what I have found is that if you were to ask me, where do I see that saturation point? Where do I see the point where I can look at a man and say your testosterone levels are optimal, uh, raise it any further, we'll have no further clinical effect. I'm going to tell you that that's when that free testosterone is 30 to 60. Okay, now some men may do fine less than that. Some men may require a little bit lower, but that is where I see. And that typically correlates with a total testosterone between 1 and 2,000. Okay, so, so therefore there is a plateau. And what confuses men is that then why do bodybuilders want their levels so high? Because it's how testosterone works. Testosterone, when you take it or make it, it goes down three different pathways. It goes down the direct pathway where it acts just as testosterone. That's predominantly on muscle tissue. And then it also goes down the diversification pathway where it's converted into estradiol where most of the benefits come from. And then it goes down the amplification pathway where it's converted into DHT. So testosterone acts through its active metabolites to give you all those wonderful beneficial effects that everybody thinks is just testosterone. But bodybuilders want their levels so high because testosterone in increasing levels of androgens upregulates the androgen receptor and muscle tissue. Therefore, you keep increasing lean muscle mass. You don't upregulate them in your brain. So the point is is that you can have a level of 10, 20, 30. Dallas Carver died with a level of over 50,000, the bodybuilder. He didn't feel any better, probably worse, but didn't feel any better than a guy with a level of 1,500. Why? Because the angina receptors were already fully saturated. He did it purely to increase lean muscle mass. There's no better feeling. So guys that'll say, well, Doc, I feel great. I just feel wonderful. Could I increase my dose to see if I feel even greater if there's such a thing? And I'm like, no. Because you've reached your plateau because those guys that ask that are already typically at their saturation point, the free testosterone is 30 to 60. And, you know, so I'm not saying that more is better. I'm saying more than a normal physiologic mid-range is better. More than that is better. We can establish that. But there comes a point to where you'll look at a man, his total testosterone, X number, say 1500, free is 50. Okay, you've got an optimal level. Anything that's not improved is not related to testosterone. You can say that. And that's when I would say it, Anna. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. How often do you see a guy stroll into your clinic that actually has an optimal testosterone level? Never. Yeah,
1: never. What do you think?
0: Never. You, I mean, I, I, I would love to compile this data because we've <laughs> t- jointly have seen thousands, thousands of men. What do you think the average testosterone level is that walks through the door? You and Anna
2: both answer this.
1: Three to four fifty or so.
2: What do you think, Anna? Yeah, completely agree. Yeah, for sure. And, and just, just to point out that that's across all age groups, whether you're 20 years old or 80 years old, commonly the 20 year olds have the same level as the 60, 70, 80 year olds now.
1: That, that, yeah. That's true. I would agree with that. I, I, I've said this all the time that, uh, that the younger men, the guys in their twenties and thirties literally have lower baseline testosterone levels mm-hmm. than the and 70 year old men that I see.
0: It's crazy because yeah. sometimes we get the father sons that come in and the dad always has higher T level than the son. And they're like mind blown. It's like, I mean, let's talk about it. I mean, we're in a low testosterone epidemic and we also have society bombarding us at the same time, demasculating men all day long. And now women are picking up their masculine energy. I mean, we're kind of on this vicious cycle, but Dr. Nichols, maybe let's address what we would consider a low T epidemic. And why are we seeing this?
1: Well, it's, it's no, it's no, we've been talking about this for years. It, it is it is your environmental toxins, your endocrine interrupted chemicals. Yes, of course, we've got obesity and sedentary lifestyle. But look, we've done the studies. Travis and that produced our harmonized reference rates did the study back in 2007 or about the population decline. And look, they they factored in obesity and smoking and other factors. And it's independent of that. It's environmental in nature. I hate to bring up a controversial topic, but look, what you see going on around you is as a result of these endocrine disrupting chemicals, there's some critical times of development, neurodevelopment, neurodevelopment uh, aspects and the fetus. And look, there any, any, you know, minor alteration in hormones at that time is going to have an effect on neurodevelopment. And, and especially it, it affects sexual differentiation and of course, gender development. Yep. And so, you know, I, I I'll say it now, it's not their fault. They're exposed to these chemicals, and, and this is the result. This is the result. And, and, our, and you got to remember testosterone, it's not just testosterone that's decreased, it's semen, sperm has decreased by over 50%. Yeah. You got to remember, they live in the same environment. You can't make, a man can't make sperm without testosterone. You have to have high intratesticular testosterone levels to produce sperm. In fact, the intratesticular testosterone levels in a man are 80 times higher than serum levels. So you have to have adequate, so if you have the testosterone levels drop, your, your, your semen is going to drop as well. Your sperm is going to drop as well. And that's just what we're seeing. There, there's no, I don't think there's any mystery anymore, any mystery at all.
0: Yep. And Anna, do you want to move into some of these myths and misconceptions or do you have a question?
2: Yeah, no, we can, we can definitely do that. You want to talk about prostate, erythrocytosis? What? Guys- <laughs>
0: well, yeah, let's start with erythrocytosis because this is one that we see when they're coming and from a primary care doctor, this can also get the primary care doctor rattled uh, here. So, so let's let's talk about that. Somebody that has uh, secondary erythrocytosis and maybe the confusion that we see between this and polycythemia.
1: Okay, may get a little complicated here, but I think, and I'll send you something that I wrote on this very topic that we'll kind of talk about. It something I've had to talk so much about, <laughs> memorized. But, yeah. but look, it is look the the. Testosterone causes a secondary erythrocytosis. This is the most common side effect of testosterone. It's the one that you know, concerns the patient the most. Of course, the family doctor, the internist, they're the most concerned about it because they see this secondary erythrocytosis as having thick blood, and they fear it could possibly lead to a heart attack, blood clot, or stroke. Okay. Now, where does it originate from? Now, when a family doctor or internist sees an increase in red blood cells, along with hemoglobin and hematocrit. It's going to be misinterpreted the majority of time as the patient having polycythemia vera, bone marrow cancer, and blood clots are a leading cause of morbidity and mortality in this disorder. Now, it's also known as a primary erythrocytosis, where there is an unregulated proliferation of hematopoietic stem cells, which leads to an overproduction of red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets. So in polycythemia vera, in contrast to the secondary erythrocytosis from testosterone, not only is there a quantitative change in the number of circulating blood cells, but more importantly there's a qualitative change that leads to expression of procoagulant characteristics. In other words, these these red blood cells that are produced are not normal. Not normal at all. Okay? They 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 express these procoagulant, they want to clot. Okay? Now, in in addition, there are abnormalities in polycythemia vera involving the vascular endothelial cells, which become procoagulant as well in response to inflammatory stimuli. So these abnormalities together result in a hypercoagulable state leading to an increase in arterial and venous thrombosis, and, and, and that's just what happens in polycythemia vera. This doesn't happen with the secondary erythrocytosis and testosterone. They produce normal red blood cells, and the vascular endothelium is normal. But the recommended treatment for personal polycythemia there is, of course, to undergo phlebotomy to, re- to decrease the risk of thrombosis. So with testosterone, there's just an increase in red blood cells, not white blood cells or platelets. You also see this same thing in other conditions like smoking, COPD, obstructive sleep apnea, living at high altitude. All right. Now, the other concern that we all hear about, is going to be viscosity, right? I mean, and you hear about viscosity, thick blood... So, the other uh, concern is when we increase hematocrit, that it's going to increase viscosity and decrease blood flow, which will then result in a thrombotic event. Now, when we look at experimental studies where we utilize rigid glass viscometers or comb plate viscometers, there is a logarithmic increase in viscosity with increase in hematocrit. But it is inappropriate to correlate these in vitro viscosity readings to what occurs to blood flowing through these tiny, distensible blood vessels in humans. In other words, You know, these in vitro experiments do not correlate to what happens in vivo in life. The the blood flow through our narrow blood vessels is rapid, and there's a high shear rate. And in a non-Newtonian fluid such as blood, there's a marked decrease in viscosity. And second, the blood flowing through these little narrow channels is axial in the center, and there's a a central core of red blood cells, but it's sliding over a peripheral layer of lubricating low-viscosity fluid. So you know there there there, there are instances where you know people are continue to worry about this, but in addition, there's an increase in blood volume with a secondary erythrocytosis that enlarges the vascular bed and it decreases peripheral resistance and increases cardiac output. So when you have a secondary erythrocytosis, the optimal oxygen transport with increased blood volume occurs at a higher hematocrit value than with a normal blood volume. And so that's, that's the, the problem that, that guys just, just can't get across is that we, we won't go back and look at the actual physiology, and that is the physiology of it, and also concerning are the guidelines. Once again, let's get into the guidelines. Now, the guidelines vary depending on the country and the medical society with regard to the upper limit of normal for hematocrit in men that are taking testosterone, for instance. The Canadian guidelines cite a hematocrit of 55%, a safe upper limit. European Association of Urology, the American Urology Association, Endocrine Society, they cite 54%. And all these guidelines say that after initiating testosterone therapy, you should follow hematocrit. And if it exceeds 54 or 55%, that physicians should either adjust testosterone dosage, stop therapy, order phlebotomy, or recommend a combination of these. It's important to understand that these recommendations are based on assumptions. And the hematocrit cutoff of 54% was arbitrarily chosen and not based on any studies showing harm when this value exceeded, was value exceeded with testosterone therapy. In fact, Dr. Glenn Cunningham was the author of Endocrine Society's guidelines when it came to hematocrit. And he was asked, where did that upper limit of 54% come from? And he replied that the number was not based on any medical data, but we had to pick a number and it seemed like a reasonable number. You, sometimes you have to just scratch your head and ask yourself, is this, does this really occur? But really, the, the upper limit of normal for hematocrit in most laboratory ranges for healthy adult males is around 54%. So that's where that number most was, was likely was uh, derived. Also creating confusion, let's think about this for a moment, is the fact that different labs have different upper limits normal for hematocrit. Some may use an upper limit of normal of 50% and others 54%. So you're telling me that if you go to your local lab your hematocrit's 51% on testosterone therapy. You go back to your doctor. It's flagged as high. He's going to tell you that have an increased risk of heart attack, strokes, blood clots. you got thick blood. Go donate. Or you go to across town, go to a different lab. The upper limb number is 54%. Yours is 51 Now you're completely normal. Everything's safe. Everything's good to go. Does that make any sense? You can't make this up.
2: Not at all. Yeah. So th- this is so interesting because, you know, we 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 have two different labs that we use sometimes. And one of them has 52% as normal. One of them was 55% as normal. I had a doctor that was concerned about them being at 55% on on the first lab. So we redrew labs and sent it to the other lab, and it was the exact same number, but it was within normal, and their doctor wasn't concerned anymore.
1: (laughs) That's right. We're so caught up with a number, but there's no data to show that exceeding it on testosterone causes harm. uh, Some more examples. Look, if you're a midshipman on the USS Eisenhower, which is one of our nuclear aircraft carriers, they have their own labs. The upper limit of normal in their lab for hematocrit, can you guess what it is? Wild
2: guess.
1: 60. 60%. 60%. All right. So we can. they can run around at 58 and 59 perfectly healthy and not dropping dead. They're in our Navy. Everything's fine. There you go. So also, you know, these normal ranges for hematocrit, just like normal ranges for estradiol and DHT, are not for men on, a, on testosterone or living at high altitude, for instance. So look, there's over 80 million people that live above 2,500 meters. They also develop a secondary erythrocytosis. They don't have to donate blood to decrease any risk of heart attack, strokes, or blood clots. You know, we also can't ignore the observation too that literally tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of men have abused testosterone over the last couple of decades and they didn't have any doctor following them. They didn't do regular blood work. And yet we didn't see an epidemic of heart attack, strokes, or blood clots in these men. And lastly, we also have to acknowledge that testosterone exerts multiple beneficial effects on the vasculature and its components, and it will protect against thrombosis. In other words, testosterone has positive effects on vascular reactivity. It's a vasodilator. It increases nitric oxide. It decreases plasma concentrations of pochallaric substances, reduces levels of lipoprotein A. It increases red blood cell deformability and improves erythrocyte membrane lipid composition and fluidity. So many wonderful things that it does, but so I always enjoy going back and kind of studying where the thought process came from when we make the recommendation, where the guidelines come from. The guidelines are highly flawed. And, uh, and I think it's always important that we go back and ask the question, where did this recommendation come from? What medical data was it based on? And then when we go back and look, once again, you'll find out that it wasn't based on anything more than an opinion.
0: And didn't Lance Armstrong use this to, uh, perform of course at, they did. you know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's of what they did. Of the doping, they did. right.
1: Yes, Scandal. Of, course. of course. Yeah, of course.
0: So I, I feel like that's one way to get men to kind of, you know, like uh, understand it a little better since they follow the sports.
1: So I always say they're kind of these boogeyman's that don't exist. Yeah. All right. They they just, this fear, this unfounded fear. The fear is not based on medical reality. The fear of the, the, the super physiologic number within reason. I didn't say raise it to Three, four, ten, fifty thousand. We we talked about the free testosterone thirty to sixty. uh, you know one to two thousand or so, maybe a little higher in some, a little lower than others. But, but so we are talking about uh, within reason. It's just the point that we're all trying to make is our method of treatment right now in mainstream medicine is inadequate. Yep. Inadequate dosing does not provide an adequate clinical result. Yeah, just like it wouldn't if we were dosing insulin or giving medication like antihypertensives. We're we're going to adjust dosage based on clinical response.
0: Okay, let's go on to a kind of another myth. DHT is it desired or considered a side effect?
1: <laughs> well, well, well. Okay, so D- DHT is is quite misunderstood out there. I, I you know, I, I find it. I find that uh, DHT is an interesting topic because of the misinformation that's there. So let's talk about normal ranges again. So the normal range for DHT is 30 to 85 nanograms per deciliter at LabCorp, for instance. All right. People need to understand that when you take exogenous testosterone, no matter what method you get, you're going to raise levels of testosterone's active metabolites, which are DHT and estradiol. Yes, the transdermal creams will raise DHT levels higher than injections because of the 5-alpha reductase in the skin. But we're going to talk about the fact that that has no clinical effect. All right. So when it comes to measuring levels of DHT, It's important to understand that the levels of DHT in response to testosterone therapy do not correlate with the levels found in androgen-sensitive tissues, like the prostate and skin, for instance. This is due to local regulatory mechanisms that tightly control intracellular androgen homeostasis. Intracellular concentrations of DHT are essentially independent of circulating levels of DHT. DHT works primarily in a paracrine fashion and is made in the target tissues. So even though you raise DHT with a transdermal delivery system, it has no effect on the intracellular levels. How do we know that? Well, we have studies where we gave men DHT for two years. We raised their levels to over 700, and there was no effect on intracellular DHT levels, nor was there an increase in acne or male pattern hair loss, believe it or not. in that. So what happens, it's really your free testosterone levels that enters the cell in adrogen-sensitive tissue, is converted into DHT, and then exerts its response. So that's that's kind of DHT. So what we're measuring in the serum is no reflection of what's happening in the tissues. So I guess guys are out there worried about hair loss. I guess because the, you know, we all hear about hair loss. Let's talk about hair loss. So look, one of the most common side effects of testosterone therapy we know is going to be hair loss. Now, it only occurs in those with genetic predisposition, but it is one of the most common side effects. So any method of delivery that increases free testosterone will increase DHT and cause hair loss in those susceptible. But men think that a transdermal method... Raises serum DHT so much higher that it's going to cause much more hair loss. Well, it's really not this increase in serum DHT, the mechanism that causes hair loss. It's the free testosterone that enters the hair follicle and is converted into DHT. And that will cause hair loss, not the circulating levels. And you got to remember, there's only a limited number of androgen receptors. And once they're fully saturated, any increase in DHT, even intracellular, will have no effect. And so you see men out there that are on injections, one of the most common side effects could be hair loss, even though they don't raise it near as much as injection, uh, the transdermal creams. But what it really comes down to is that if you raise free testosterone levels adequately or the same amount with injections or cream, you're going to have the same amount of hair loss. But what I see is that the cream raises free testosterone levels better for any given total than injections does. All right. And there's a reason why that does occur. And it is related to the DHT. All right. So when we give a so 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 but so once again you're going to lose hair whether it's injectable or cream, you will lose more hair in an instance where you're getting a cream versus an injection if the cream raises your free testosterone levels higher than injections, and you haven't reached the saturation point with the injections. All right, so there there's a time where I can see that that occurring, but in a when you have a good optimal level and you're doing a daily injection or daily cream, that's comparing apples to apples daily. So you have a stable level of free testosterone. If you have an optimal level of free testosterone injections or cream and it's the same, you're going to have the same amount of hair loss. But the reason that cream raises free testosterone levels better than the injections is because of the serum DHT that it does create. Even though it doesn't enter the tissue and have any effect, DHT binds sex hormone binding globulin with five times greater affinity than testosterone. So whenever you raise that DHT level in the serum, it's going to bind up that sex hormone binding globulin and free up testosterone. That's how it raises free testosterone levels better. So if I get a man with a level of, let's make up a number, 1,200 on injections and 1,200 on cream, the cream always raises free testosterone levels better in that same man.
2: And just to clarify, so not everybody who takes testosterone is going to lose their hair. We're talking about it as a common, a, a, as a potential side effect. But this is it, it, there's not a, a correlation on the the more testosterone you take, the no. the higher your testosterone, the more hair you you lose. That that does not occur.
1: Right No, you have to have the genetic predisposition. And so, I'm, I'm sure people out there are asking, "Well, that doesn't make sense, Doctor Nichols," because. Whenever I take a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor, I take my finasteride, it lowers my DHT in the serum and it prevents my hair loss. It does lower your DHT in the serum. That is correct. But the effectiveness of drugs like finasteride resides at the level of the hair follicle itself. It lowers follicular concentrations of DHT and it's not the reduction of circulating DHT that, that, that decreases the hair loss. And we once again know this because we gave men transdermal DHT raised their levels to 700 for two years, and they had no increase in hair loss or even acne. So that that's the key. It's, 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 so so the finasteride decreases the conversion of free testosterone, DHT, at the hair follicle itself.
0: So what would you say to a patient wanting to take both? Want to be on testosterone but also take a finasteride?
1: I warn them, uh, and I give them literature. I always provide them with literature, okay? The, the, there are millions of men obviously on it. This FDA approved for hair loss and BPH. But I'll always say, look, at your own risk. When time you block any of testosterone's active metabolites to serve one purpose, you're going to pay for it somewhere else. And so I advise them that you can do that, but beware of potential sexual side effects that could be long-lasting or permanent. Be careful of some long-term cognitive effects. And I tell them that look, you have other options though. There's red light therapy, there's PRP injection, there's hair transplants, there's topical solutions that you know don't don't have such a, such an effect on serum levels. And so, you know, we we certainly want to avoid post-finasteride syndrome. But I do think that there is a long-term consequence to anyone that blocks the active metabolites of testosterone because. Men out there need to understand that testosterone literally works through its active metabolites. It doesn't work as testosterone everywhere. More than half the benefits come from its active metabolites. And when you block those, you're blocking testosterone's benefits. That's just what happens at the cellular level. So, uh, you know, it's their choice. Uh, You know, you can't as a physician, you know, I try to reluctantly. And luckily, most men recently, when you send them the literature, send them the data, they say, no, I'll just use a topical solution or use other things or kind of get used to it.
0: David Lee posted something on his Instagram the other day that I thought was just classic. He's like, he said something, if your hair is more important than your dick, you probably need to go talk to somebody about that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've had to say, guys, you know, it's either hair or health, but but you would be shocked at the the, the really bad decisions some men can make out there. I remember one man, very much in particular, he had a level of testosterone, 150, and this is a 40-some-odd-year man, but he loved his hair. He literally, I mean, it's just, it just defined himself by by his hair. And I, I warned him about all the potential long-term effects of having the low testosterone like that, increased risk of prostate cancer, of course, everything bad, increased morbidity and mortality across the board with a level that low. But his fear of losing that hair was greater than his long-term health. The elderly said, look, Bill, if you die a premature death from from Everything that could potentially happen from this low testosterone level, nobody's going to look at you in that casket and say, hey, man, he has a great head of hair. <laughs> they'd, they'd rather have you alive with less hair than, than in that casket with a full head of hair.
2: Yeah, so true. Do you, do you like things like oral minoxidil in the setting of testosterone therapy? Do you think that has some benefit?
1: I really haven't had to use it a lot. When I did use it in a few men, they had some side effects they didn't like. So, mm-hmm. so I don't really have to use it. Thank goodness. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a difference in men that we treat. I think that Dave Lena probably talk about this in the future, and I'm, we can talk about it now. Look, I, I, there's different populations of men that are treated. The twenties, teens, twenties, and early thirties—they're a different population of men than the mid forties on up. It's just a, a kind of a, a different world. And most of the men that in their 40s, 50s, 60s above, they're just, you know, they're they're kind of settled in life. They're, you know, they're not out there to, you know, necessarily impress all the ladies. And it's all all about muscles and sex. It's really about their health at that point. And they tend to do wonderful. They don't have any issues, no side effects, really. You just. But the younger population, the 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 forum crowd, you know, they're. In their information off the internet, the forum, they'll, they'll follow bro science, follow, they'll follow the actual medic, medical literature. They're always looking for a quick fix. They think that testosterone can be used in other hormones like a stereo equalizer, where you could just, if you feel a certain way a certain week, you can just adjust it and you'll just make it all better. It doesn't work that way. I, I think we always need to stick to what this is really all about. When we're treating men with a deficiency, we're treating them with a trial of testosterone therapy. None of us can really, I mean, the sexual symptoms. The lack of morning erections, the decreased libido, things like that. Those are the most sensitive, but most of the symptoms are fairly nonspecific. So when we treat a man with so-called normal levels, we always have to tell them look, this is a trial of testosterone therapy. And what we're doing is we're seeing if the symptoms that you're reporting are related to testosterone. Now you've tried to rule out all other causes now. You know, I'm skipping ahead of, you know, nutrition, exercise, sleep, you know, we've, we've said that all oh, that's okay. So what we're doing, Mr. Smith, is we're going to raise your testosterone levels to an optimal level and give it time to work. Whatever doesn't improve is not related to testosterone. Whatever does, of course, great. That's great for you. You're better. So not all symptoms are related to testosterone or other hormones. You know, there's so many factors that go in how we feel and function every day besides hormones. And so they don't need to fall into that testosterone as a panacea trap. That's kind of what I run into, and I make sure that I that I, that I tell them that. It's a very simple process that is, that is made way too complicated by too many practitioners and too many forums. It is a simple process. You have low levels. You have symptoms related to it. I raise your levels. We give it time to work, and anything that gets better is testosterone, anything that's not won. It's so simple, and it works in everyone, young or old, male or female. From a physiology standpoint, it does the same thing. So that's kind of my, my take on testosterone itself, a very simple process.
0: So let's talk about what more of these miss here, because you mentioned the forums and uh, these guys kind of taking advice off of there. We've talked about this at Nauseam, I feel like on this podcast, and I have my only one star review on the podcast because of this topic, because they are, they don't like that we are quote anti-AI. So I want you to give your take, you know, you can give it quickly on blocking estrogen
1: okay well i I'll, I'll do the kind of the, the quick one then okay, look there's not an anti a i and an a i crowd I, I kind of correct them. there is a evidence based medicine crowd, and then there's one that's not evidence based at all when I literally can tell them that every single study that we've got on testosterone showing benefits of men, they did not block or control estradiol when we did, it resulted in negative effects or no beneficial effects it's under here's a a problem too. Again, normal levels and men wanting to look at normal levels. They don't care if their testosterone level is outside the normal range, but they want to maintain their estradiol in that normal range. Let's talk about that. The normal range for estradiol LabCorp is 8 to 35. Does anybody know where that comes from? Well, I I found it out. So I contacted LabCorp, got with their medical director to find out, Where did this normal range of eight to 35 come from? Let me see the study. Let me see the population of men. Let me look at their hormonal status, their testosterone levels, everything else, their health status. They don't have any records of that study. It was done decades ago. It was not from any study. It was from male volunteers that worked at the facility at the time. So these men are trying to keep their levels on testosterone within a range for men that are not on test. They weren't on testosterone, by the way. Of 8 to 35, and when you go raise testosterone, you're going to raise levels of its active metabolites in order to get the benefits from testosterone. So they want to maintain their levels from 8 to 35 based on an unknown population of men. I found it really interesting that I was looking at some literature and I was looking at a, a study on a man with a congenital aromatase deficiency in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it was done in 1997. And they gave the lab values for their local lab that they used at that time. The normal range for estradiol at that time, at that lab, was 20 to 90 picograms per milliliter. Now imagine if LabCorp adopted that normal range that was used in that lab, men would not stress about their estradiol at all because the majority of men on testosterone will still be within that range. They would never think a day about it. And when it comes to measuring estradiol in serum, Now, when we're not on testosterone, about 20% of circulating estradiol originates from direct testicular secretion. The rest is from peripheral rheumatization, mainly from the adipose tissue, as you know, but also in the muscle, the brain, and the bone as well. But in men on testosterone, of course, testicular protection is suppressed, so therefore, the estradiol is really from the peripheral rheumatization. What these men need to understand is that in healthy men, these serum levels of E2 that you measure reflect the total estradiol that has diffused into the bloodstream from all tissues have been synthesized by aromatase and escaped that local tissue metabolism. These serum levels, no matter how accurately you think you measure it, is an indirect reflection of estrogen at the tissue level. So when we use an aromatase inhibitor to lower the levels that we see in the serum, it's going to lower the estrogen in the tissues at the cellular level, which will then decrease the beneficial effects of testosterone in those tissues. And so the the confusion comes from the bodybuilding world once again. Yep. Yeah, they thought it was a good idea. Yep. At the time, that look, if I block estradiol, it's going to increase my free testosterone, and therefore, I'm going to build bigger muscles. It does that. But of course, it kills you at the same time because it blocks the estradiol in the target tissues, in the brain, the bones, the heart, the blood vessels. So that's the real problem with blocking it. There's no data to support doing that. I don't have a single man on an aromatase table because none of them need it.
0: Yeah. Neither none do we. Neither do we. Yeah. So let's, yep. you know, I know we have a few minutes left and this probably kind of naturally leads into that. You don't have anybody on it and they don't need it. You, you, your dosing protocols. Okay. Let's talk about those, your preferred method of delivery, how you dose. I'll be glad to. Yes.
1: Be glad to. All right. So I give testosterone two ways, injections or cream. Now, look, there are other methods of delivery, which I tell everyone, I just don't find them as efficacious. So I find that a daily utilization of either injections or cream works the best from a clinical standpoint. I like a stable level of free testosterone with a minor little sine wave, not any significant peak or trough. So they get to choose which method they they will, they will utilize. And the differences are just this. Number one, the cream is just much easier to travel with. You don't have to travel with needles, syringes, and vials. Number two, The cream, as I've already discussed, will raise free testosterone levels for any given total better than the injections. Number three, the cream will not have a negative effect on the HDL cholesterol, where the injections can in some men. And then the cream tends to have a better effect on sexual function in a lot of men. And that's not from that serum DHT we hear so much about, but it's because it raises free testosterone levels better that once again converted into DHT. Most men don't inject daily. So if they're not going to inject daily, I recommend every other day or no less than three days a week. I don't even prescribe it less than three days a week because I want great clinical success. The thing about the cream, too, is when if a man doesn't inject daily, the only way to compare injections to cream is daily of both. So when Anand does daily cream, he's got a stable level of free testosterone. There's not a big drop, maybe a 25% drop at 12 hours from the morning application. So if you go from 1600 to, 4 to, to 1200, whatever you may do, just a nice little sine wave. But you stay above the saturation point. The whole, the whole method of delivery and, and what you're trying to accomplish is there's a minimal effective concentration, which is a line. You want to get above it and stay above it. And you want to get to that saturation point where you get the maximum benefits of testosterone. You don't want to drop below the minimal effect of concentration. I'm a big proponent of the scrotal cream. Men out there will tell you, I read it all the time, I get a laugh about it multiple times every day. Yes, I have men on injections. I'm not saying injections are not good. 90 to 95% of men on injections are fine, they don't mind it. uh, Five or 10% don't like it for whatever their reason is. The same holds true for cream. 90, 95% of men love it, five or 10% are not going to like it for whatever their reasons. Now, you know, I, I probably have more, well, I do, I have more experience with the cream than probably anybody in the country at this point in time. I've been using it longer than anybody. And uh, every different base you could think of, and so every different timing of, of when to test levels. So, so the cream, what I try to tell people is that, look, yes, injections work. We know that. But what I try to get across is that there is another method of delivery that is just as good, if not better, for many men than injections. Okay, and so that's the key. I dose it twice a day, the cream, twice a day. I use a scrotal application, so it's twice a day. And I measure levels five hours after application. And that's kind of how about how I dose it. I dose it based on symptomatic improvement. And if I had a and so people say, Well, Doctor, what aim, what levels are you aiming for? I don't aim for any level. I don't aim for a level. So let's all re- be clear here, because you asked a really good question earlier. So I don't aim for a level. I start on the dose that I find that gets most men where they tend to be in the most efficient amount of time. And then I'll measure the levels and follow up their symptom questionnaire. If I looked at a bell-shaped curve of where most men were when they had symptomatic improvement, their levels would be a free testosterone of 30 to 60. Yes, that's correct. So once I get that level, once their symptoms have improved or resolved, then once again, raising it higher than that is going to have no additional effect unless you're going to use it for abusive bodybuilder person, which we don't prescribe it for that. So that's kind of where I sit with my dose. I do the same thing with the injections, looking for the same free testosterone levels exactly.
0: I would say we probably are close to a 50-50 split on the transdermal cream versus injections. But I'm just kind of curious on some of the mistakes you see with guys trying to apply the, the cream. Because okay. we do get some feedback
1: there. Well, I'm going to give you some, okay, I'm going to give you the, 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 20 years of experience with that cream. And so you're about to, okay, so look, may, the, the key to is getting, a, I've, I can send you studies that show you that the compounded cream can be a hit or miss for many facilities. So you have to get it from a facility that's willing to independently test their product and that you know, you've always got a quality product. I do that. I only use one facility now, right now, because I, I want to take any compounding out of the equation. I need it to be as good as it can be. So I use just one one compounding facility presently because they'll independently test their product and I always get great levels. It's a consistent batch to batch, but I haven't seen that previously. All right, so you got to get a good product. Then they have to apply it properly. It needs to be applied to clean, cool and dry, fresh, preferably freshly shaven scrotum. So when I tell them that, clean, yes. If you're dirty or sweaty, for whatever reason, clean up first before you apply it. But if you've been sitting around the house or office all day not really doing much, you do not have to bathe or shower before you have application. Dry. Get out of the shower and dry off and completely cool down first before you apply it. Do not apply it when you first get out when there's still a lot of moisture or humidity in the room or on your body. So clean, and I use the word scrotum, your nutsack, I'll tell them, excuse my language, nutsack, all over. I use a vanishing cream. I timed it the other morning. It took me 10.5 seconds to rub it in. It, it literally vanishes in, goes completely in, just like putting sunscreen on your face. So literally 10.5 seconds. So clean, cool, dry. It works best on a freshly shaven scrotum. Why? Well, when you shave the scrotal skin with an actual razor, not an electric razor, you remove hair, debris, oil, and dead skin cells. So you actually exfoliate the skin. So you really prep the site to absorb that testosterone its best. They want to avoid bathing, showering, or swimming for at least four to five hours after they apply it. So they want to apply it twice a day, 12 hours apart. It does not have to be 12 hours on the dot, but keep it within a 10 to 14 hour window. Don't apply it closer than 10, later than four, four. If they miss a dose or forget a dose for any reason, they should not stress over it. They do not need to double up with their next dose. They won't feel any different if you miss a dose. Many men just want to do it once a day just for their own convenience. And so the other issue is the guys worry about is transference. Transference is an easy issue to avoid. And once again, I treat a, a mature population of men. I don't have any issues with transference. So, and um, by the way, once I measure my levels, I measure at the five hour mark after I apply. That's my mark, the five hour. So transference, how do they avoid transference? There are really four easy ways. Number one, wait five hours or longer after you apply it to have sexual intercourse Number, or sexual activity. Number two. Just wait till after sexual activity to apply it. Number three, at any time after you apply it, if you want to reduce any risk of transference, simply go into the restroom, take a towel, soap and water and wash off the application site. Number four, many people are very scheduled with regard to their intimacy. If it happens to be that night or nights it always occurs, you do not have to apply it that night. And once a man does start, I recommend that he sleep with some form of clothing on his lower half. And lastly, I'll, we need to talk about just two more things probably. So that is transference. But literally, why do we use the scrotal skin? Why? Well, there are two reasons we use the scrotal application. Number one, we typically get our best levels from the scrotal skin because it's thin-skinned and highly vascular. You can literally apply this cream anywhere that you have skin from head to toe, anywhere. But the scrotal skin is going to give us our best levels. And number two, it reduces our risk of transference, believe it or not. Since transference requires skin-to-skin contact, with a scrotal application, we should have completely eliminated any risk of transference to children or animals and men that have men that get their uh, wives pregnant should not use the scrotal uh, should not use transdermal cream. They should be on injections until she finishes breastfeeding. Then they can get back on the cream. So that's the cream. When it comes to measuring levels, they should only measure levels with consistent application. So for instance, I recommend two days of consistent application before your lab test. If you miss any, don't go get labs. So if you're going to get labs on a Wednesday morning, I recommend they apply it twice Monday, twice tuesday and then wednesday morning exactly five hours before their labs if they miss any of those applications don't go get labs and by the way labs are never going to be consistent nobody's talking about this but you'll see guys one minute their free testosterone is 54 next minute they come back next year it's 43 oh my god doc my testosterone dropped two points to make out to that guy at a free of 43 you're well over the saturation point man you're not going to notice a difference between 54 and 43 but that is not a real number whenever we measure levels with that testosterone cream. You got to remember, especially from year to year, from lab to lab, that morning application rides on top of the evening application. That evening application rides on top of the morning application. So if you and I applied our testosterone cream, women apply it too, we applied it at 6 a.m. on a Monday, 6 p.m. on a Monday, and then 6 a.m. on Tuesday and went and got our labs at 11 a.m. five hours later, we will have a number. If the next time we tested our labs, we applied it at 7 p.m., and I mean, 7 a.m., then 5.30 p.m., then got up and plotted it at 5.30 a.m., we're going to have a completely different number. Yeah. And that's why we don't want to focus on that number, but on symptomatic resolution, because that number is never going to be the same unless we are just purely experimental and just totally do it. But I've done this, liter- this research as well. I've, a, I've done it exactly at the same times. The labs give me a different number, okay? Mm-hmm. I've also drawn blood in two vials at the same time, and send it into different lab runs, different number. So guys don't need to get caught up in a number, especially when you're running in those really good optimal ranges because you're not going to, that number is it's just not a, a true adequate reflection. You need to focus on how you're feeling and your symptom resolution. I hope that makes yes, sense. No, that was yeah. a great reason. Yeah. No focus on those numbers. They get so focused on a little drop. In, oh, it was 53. Now it's 48. They're the same number, essentially, my friend. We're in the same ballpark. That just has to do with application. How do you feel? I feel great. Oh, exactly. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, we're right at our hour mark. So just uh, last question here before we go, what are you most excited about in this hormone optimization space?
1: Oh, goodness. Well, you know,
0: <laughs> Only, good uh,
1: Only good news. Only good news. I'm a little worried about the, the, the optimization space than I am excited. Okay, about. Okay, well, then it. maybe uh,
0: cool. then let's do that. What, what most concerns you?
1: Well, I mean, I think that we see now there's a testosterone meal opening up on every corner, every uh, social media platform you get to. And I think that's ultimately going to be the downfall for us all. I think they'll come in and regulate like they did the pill mills. Remember the pain management yeah. pill mills, same thing, same thing happened. And uh, so I think that ultimately it's going to come in and have an effect on all of us. I've said this for years, and I think it will happen. I think that they'll, uh, they'll come in and, and regulate it and make it much more difficult for men to get testosterone. Because once, look, it's a wild west out there now. you got people opening clinics that have no business opening the clinic, by the way. You know, and not you. I'm talking about, you know what I'm, you know they're out yeah. there. You know, they're, they're providing anabolic steroids. We're talking about those those clinics. You know who they yeah. are. They're prescribing anabolic steroids and everything else along with this. It's going to be the downfall of us all. And that's what I worry about. And all they would have to do is ultimately the boards, any, any state board could come in and say, look, in this state, You cannot prescribe testosterone unless you meet criteria per the guidelines. That would run it for everyone.
0: Yeah. And explain what you mean by that, meet criteria.
1: That means that you would have to test on two occasions in the morning, fasted when your testosterone levels were the highest, less than 264 in order to qualify to get testosterone. Yeah. Very few men meet that criteria. You have to be a very sick man to meet that criteria. Yeah.
0: Very concerning.
1: So so that's what I worry about. I, I, so that, my, my, I'm always the kind of the guy that's worried about what I'm seeing. And and, and look, it's not only the, the, the T-mails that are doing the, the uh, you know, you, what you're seeing. There's, now look, I'll do it to you. There was a doctor just pulled it up yesterday, sent it to Neil and, and Christy. There was a uh, a doctor suspended in California just in the last year for prescribing, you know, ACG for weight loss, but also for prescribing ipamorelin, which is a non-FDA-approved peptide. They suspended his license. So these non-FDA-approved for research purposes only— Dr. human animal consumption are going to get some doctors in trouble as well. Yep. So we just got to, you know, you know, you got to stick to what hormone optimization is really about. And that's where I talk about all the ones that want to do that are typically your 20s and, and your 30s. The guys that typically I treat are, you know, your middle-aged and older men that just want a better quality of life. They don't want to take animal steroids. They don't want to inject a research-only peptide into them. They're not looking to biohack their way through life. They just want to spend more time with their wife and be more intimate and with their kids and their hobbies and their friends. And that that's the kind of, that's my population of men that I'm so proud and happy to treat.
0: Yep. Well, Dr. Nichols, I really appreciate your time, Anna. I know you're kind of cutting it out there, Anna, but I told you all it would be a great podcast and I'll attach Dr. Nichols' uh, Tier 1 Health and Wellness Clinic and where you can find him on social media. He's very active on YouTube. He does a lot of stuff with uh, Jay Campbell on YouTube as well. So I'll attach as much as I can there in the show notes and thank you for being on today.
1: Thank you, Amy.